seated. Since the fall of man, as recorded in Genesis 3, and as we have noted as we've gone through this study so far, there has been a truth war. There is always an ongoing battle for truth. The moment that we stop, the moment we hesitate, the moment we relent and think, well, everybody knows the truth, we've already begun to lose it. We have seen that as being more than evident, this idea of truth wars in our context of politics, in the context of medical treatments, in the context of racial tensions. One side wants to push and promote something that is false as being true. And if that side has enough power, they will seek by any means to silence those who threaten their misguided reality. And so we find ourselves today still part of that Genesis 3 truth war. We're still in the midst of this, this truth war where one side wrongly believes that men can be pregnant, that women can be men, men can be women, killing babies is a right, grooming children to be something they were not born to be is good, and so on and so forth. And you don't have to listen to the news long to know that we are in the middle of this battle. But this truth war has never been limited and ought not ever be considered to be limited to our cultural issues. Indeed, what I've mentioned already has its reality based in the only authority for all we believe and all that we do. And that's the word of God. We believe in male and female. We believe in a binary understanding of gender because God said so. And no amount of wishful thinking can change such a reality. It is God who knits lives together in the womb. It is God who has instructed us to bring up our children in the fear and discipline of the Lord. All of these things find their reality where? In the word of God. But the word of God is also undermined by those who claim to be the very mouthpieces of God. And that is where it becomes so devastating. The truth war extends not simply into cultural issues, but into our theology. What the Bible teaches us about God. What it teaches us about humanity, about sin and Jesus Christ and salvation. And so while there are a variety of churches that sit under the banner of what we would call Christian, the reality is that many such churches are embracing now teachings that go against, that undermine, that actually have no basis at all in the word of God. To use a theological term, and I know we all love our theology or theological terms, the teachings found in many churches are what we call unorthodox. The word orthodox comes from a Greek word orthos. We get um, you know, orthodontist, the guy who does what? Who straightens your teeth, right? So orthodox means straight teaching. Fundamentally, it means straight teaching. And unorthodox means crooked teaching. So when you see crooked teeth, you can think their teeth are unorthodox. I wouldn't say that to them because they might get mad. To teach that which is unorthodox would also be what we would call heretical teaching. Heretical means to dissent or to go against the prescribed orthodox teaching. Not to oversimplify it, but most all heretical teaching 
can be somehow boiled down to just one devious deviation. If you really want to sum all heresy down to one idea, here it is. I'll give it to you simply. It is the diminishing of the work and or person of Jesus Christ. Any teaching that undermines the person and work of Jesus Christ is by definition unorthodox and it is heresy. Any teaching that diminishes what the Bible says concerning Christ is heresy. Therefore, the Roman Catholic Church is heretical. Why? Because it does not teach that Christ alone saves, but rather it is Christ plus baptism. It is Christ plus the sacraments of the church. It is Christ plus the traditions of the church. This diminishes the power and the extent of what Christ did on the cross. The work of Christ is not sufficient in Roman Catholicism, but only makes salvation possible for those who are members of the Roman Catholic Church, for those who regularly partake of the sacraments, marriage in the church, last rites, etc. And beloved, that is heretical teaching. In the third century, a leader by the name of Sibelius began teaching the oneness of God, denying that there are any distinctions in the Godhead and that there is only one God who has manifested himself in various modes. So we call sometimes this teaching modalism. In other words, God has not and does not presently exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but has rather manifested himself in time in and through those persons. So in the Old Testament, he was the father. In the New Testament time of, of Christ, he came as the son of God, and currently he molds himself in the person of the spirit. This teaching was condemned as heretical and unorthodox by the church in 220 A.D., yet this false teaching continues today. It's held by oneness Pentecostalism. The teaching not only diminishes the person of Christ, why? It diminishes him because, well, he's no longer. That's a diminishment. But it also diminishes the entire Godhead because, well, they've only existed in certain times. In the fourth century, a man by the name of Arius began teaching that Christ was a created being, the highest of all the created beings, but lesser than God. His teaching spread abroad, and it was condemned by the church in 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea. Yet this teaching continues in the so-called Christian church under the banners that you, uh, of course, would not consider Christian probably in our uh, circles, but held by the Jehovah's Witness, held by the Mormons who regard Jesus as a created being in contradiction to what is taught in the word of God. This makes them what? Heretical teachings. As we come now back to our letter of Jude and we look particularly at verse 4, we find that the truth war raged even before all of that. That the truth war is raged in the church from the earliest of days. Jude is writing about 70 AD. The church is but 40 years old. And Jude is delighted. This pastor is delighted by this, and I pray that we get this excitement as well. He's excited at the joys and the prospects of salvation in Jesus Christ. More than anything else, this pastor wanted to write to them about their common salvation. 
What should be the desire of our hearts is, is to be at a baptism service, to hear the testimony of the God who saved these individuals and brought them to himself and transferred them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. And Jude is, is desirous of and delighted to speak of such things to these believers but as he seeks to develop his thesis, as he sits down writing with pen and he begins to put his thoughts into words, the Holy Spirit lays a burden upon his heart. Jude begins to take notice of that which is beginning to come into the church itself. And Jude notes that false teachings were beginning to take shape and they were being found not on the outside of the church, but notice what verse 4 says, they have crept into the church. Heresies, these deviations from the true teachings of Christ, along with apostasies, which is a complete falling away and a renouncing of what was once held as true, were making their way into the hearts and minds of some within the church. Therefore, Jude gives this exhortation. Notice again in verse 3, I felt the necessity meaning the burden and obligation to write to you appealing, he's pleading, he's begging that you as a congregation and as individual believers do what? You would contend earnestly. That's what we looked at last week. Are you agonizing for the faith? Are you fighting with everything you have for the faith? I know that we might all desire to say, yes, we are. We also would know, it's like asking the question, how many of you pray, and we'll raise our hands, how many of you think you could pray more, and we keep raising our hands? You may be contending earnestly, but you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And this dude is saying here, you must be ready, you must be pressing, even if it means the shedding of blood. For what? The faith. The body of truth that uh, taught to you by Christ and his apostles, and it has been given to you once for all. It is full and complete. It lacks nothing necessary for the saints. Jude's goal is simple. He is calling believers, and the Holy Spirit is using this now to call believers today to resist the advancement of unbiblical demonic-inspired teachings that undermine the body of truth that has been given to us from Christ and the apostles, and particularly anything that undermines the work and person of Jesus Christ. And so, beginning in verse 4, Jude lays out some of the reasons for this exhortation. Why do believers need to be called to such an extreme commitment? Why do I need to stand up here today and say, okay, you may have gotten yourself to a certain point, but now you need to push harder and push further. You may be able to bench press 100 pounds. Now it's time to bench press 150. And then when you get there, you're going to do 200. And you're going to keep going. You're like, I don't know if I can do this, but you're going to keep moving. We're going to be there for one another. He's pushing them. Why such a call to such extreme commitment to agonize for the faith? And now we come to verse 4. Here's the why. Nothing has changed since 70 A.D. For certain persons, 
have crept in unnoticed. Who, those who are long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude was keenly aware of what was at stake. The church was in his day and continues to be now infiltrated by those whose purpose it is to undermine faith, to bring about unorthodox teaching. Jude writes then to alert his readers to this reality, the presence and doctrinal dangers they were facing because in their midst were Satan's undercover agents. Now, I don't mean for you to start getting conspiratorial. We have enough of that in our culture today. And the idea is not necessarily that there are undercover agents in this church, but there are in the church as a whole. And so Jude wants to, in verse 4, identify those for us. And he gives five attributes of apostates. Here are five things that are true about these apostates, these these persons who pursue heresy and unorthodox teaching. Now, let me be clear here, as I've spoken earlier of heretics, and now I'm speaking of apostates, that heresy is the choosing of a doctrinal belief or teaching other than what is taught in the Bible. It is holding to the traditions of men. It is holding to the traditions of a church rather than going to the source to the word of God. Apostasy takes that heresy a step further. Apostasy is a deliberate act of a professing Christian, somebody who says they're Christian, who knowingly and deliberately rejects the truth as found in the word of God, again, particularly uh, regarding the deity of Christ, redemption through his sacrifice, or any part of the doctrines related to salvation. The apostate is one who is in active revolt against God. He maintains an outward profession of faith. He says some of the same words, but he has a different definition. And so he speaks to unwitting sometimes and uh, undisciplined Christians who take those words and think he's saying the same thing, and they buy into the teaching, and they have their faith, as Paul says, it could be shipwrecked. This is what makes apostasy insidious. It's subtle. It is dangerously devastating. These are not obviously non-Christian beliefs and practices from outside of the church. I mean, if we were to say, let's talk about Hinduism or animism or, or, uh, or secular humanism, we know those reside outside the church. But these are in the church. These are people who say, I believe in Jesus. These are people who profess to be speaking for God, and yet their teachings are so far from the truth. Again, this is why there is a call to contend earnestly for the faith, people. It takes effort. It takes exertion. It takes resolve to examine everything carefully to see if it is biblical. Before we look at the attributes of the apostates, let me point out that Jude does not identify for us what these teachings are. You got to ask, why didn't he identify them? When, I mean, here, you know, here I've been telling you all sorts of things that are engaged that we're engaged in with our truth war. Why does Jude not give us what was going on, what he had in mind when he wrote these words? Well, I, I think there's probably a very Uh, easy answer to that and it is that this would be written for the church of all ages 
And so it does not matter what the heresy is, what the apostasy is, what the false teaching is. It always will come back to these characteristics will be found in those who hold to false teachings. I believe this is a grace of God then that the principles and the warnings against falling into apostasy apply to any and all deviant teachings of any and all ages. It does not matter the name of the deviation, just we are to know that the nature of such deviation, we need to know that, and what is the nature of these deviators. So what what that said, though, I do want you to be aware, because you'll read some of these, and you may not readily identify them as the things that Jude was contending with. There are at least three false teachings at the time of Jude that he may have referred to one or all three of them. And the first one is what we call Judaistic Christianity. You've probably heard the term the Judaizers. These would be Jews that supposedly had been converted to Christ, but rather than seeking to to be free in Christ, that Christ has fulfilled the law for them, they would say you must believe in Christ and keep the law of the Old Testament in order to be saved. They would see that uh, Jesus was merely a prophet, a second Moses, and they did not denied his divine nature, his priestly function, and his kingly office. So what is it doing? It's diminishing the person and work of Christ. And Judaistic Christianity taught that circumcision, sacrifices, attendance to adherence to the ceremonial law, all of that was binding. Are you glad that we don't have to do all of that today? Well, if the Judaizers had won out, that's what we'd be doing. Christianity was not new then. It was not free. It was not universally available. It was just good old-fashioned Judaism repackaged. For you history buffs, this was teaching was developed more fully under the name of Ebonianism in the second century. There is a second one called Gnosticism, and some of you are familiar with the term Gnosticism. It seems that it was in its very uh, beginning stages at the time of Paul and was beginning to take more shape at the time of Jude, and especially when John begins writing in the late uh, of the first century. And Gnosticism, of course, as you see, they taught that there was a secret knowledge that you were supposed to have if you were rightly related and initiated into the group. They also taught that all that is material, all that is corporeal, is evil, and only the spiritual and good is divine. Well, what does that do to Jesus Christ? Well, they denied that he was ever came in the flesh because flesh is evil. And so he only came as some kind of spiritual ghost. And so it's doing what? It's undermining the person of Christ. And the third one is syncretism. And I know I'm giving you all of these words like, what is this about preaching? All these things. Well, these are, this is what's going on. And syncretism is the combina- combining of two or more competing and really contradicting philosophies or religions. Syncretism sought to blend Judaism and later Christianity with the other heathen philosophies, particularly those of Pythagoras and Plato, and bring it all under the name and banner of Christianity. And so ultimately the result was nothing more than paganized Christianity and um, And so that would do what? It would undermine the person and work of Christ. Interesting, 
as we think about this, whatever the differences in the heresies and apostasies, they all resulted in a direct denial of the gospel, somehow undermined the incarnation of the Son of God for the salvation of the world. They, they either reduced Christ to being merely a man or maybe some supernatural ghost. They could not reconcile the true and eternal union of, of both the divine and human natures united in the one person of Jesus Christ, Heresy undermines the unity of the doctrine and of the fellowship of the early church. Therefore, we find the early church and her willingness to actually excommunicate. If you began to say anything that undermined Christ, the church says, you're out. We will not tolerate it in the church. We see it as early as uh, Paul when he writes to, to Titus. In Titus 3, 10 through 11, it says, reject a factious man. That literally is reject the heretic. Reject the heretic after a first and second warning. You tell him his teaching is wrong. You tell him a second time. And if he continues, you throw him out, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Once such heresies, heretics were excommunicated, though they would form their own groups and assemblies, and what would they do in those groups? They would perpetrate, they would propagate their false teachings. Heresy becomes apostasy when there is a deliberate holding to error in spite knowing the truth of what God's word says. And this is what Jude is warning his readers. So let us turn to our attention now to Jude 4 and note the five attributes of an apostate. And we begin, it's neat how that all came up that way. We'll begin with uh, their deception. We'll begin with their deception. Notice verse 4 begins this way. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. I would like you to realize as we read this that for Jude, this is no hypothetical event. This is not this could happen. This is not, you know, let's watch out in case it happens. It is that certain persons are present in the church. Nothing's changed. This is not a what-if event. These certain persons, they're unnamed, yet evidently it would be persons that were known to Jude's readers had crept in unnoticed. The verb crept only appears here in all of the New Testament. It's a creepy word. It speaks of slipping in secretly with evil intent. It could literally be translated as this, to get in by the side. You don't want to come in the front door. You don't want to be noticed. I'm going to slip in from the side. I'm going to come in through the back door. I'm going to pop in through some window. So the idea of sneaking in is, is in this word. The idea here is that such persons do not come through the proverbial front door. They do not openly announce, hey, I'm going to deny some of the key tenets of, of the Christian faith. No one would do it that way. They are deceptive to their very core. And they sneak in through the side door. They use vocabulary that suggests they believe. And yet all they've done is redefine the terms. So when I speak of Jesus to a Mormon, I promise you they're not speaking of the same Jesus. They don't think of the same Jesus. But you know that there are those who are in what we might consider as they should be good churches. And they don't know who Jesus is. Their concept of Jesus is not derived from the word of God. 
their concept of Jesus is derived from books that they've read that they probably should not have read. Derived from what they feel. They love that one. Well, I feel Jesus should be like this. I don't care what you feel like Jesus should be. What does God's word say Jesus is? And so we have these, these people who uh, they, they, they get these teachings that have not come in straight uh, at them. It, they come in through the side, redefined terms. The, these apostates, their goal is to be accepted. Their goal is to be trusted, to get into areas of influence and prominence. And once inside the church, they begin to bring others of their own ilk into the church infiltrating not only the church but the institutions of the church such as the seminaries i am appalled and i know i'm going to say something here that some of you're going to what are you talking about i'm appalled at those who i once regarded with great respect who have run seminaries that we would greatly respect have allowed critical race theory to be taught in the seminary thinking it's somehow okay if you don't know what all of that's about, well, we'll deal with that later. They're coming into the church. What makes such persons so insidious is that they are not coming from the outside of the church, propagating their lies and deception. The Bible warns us of those persons, but for Jude, the concern is that they are here. These are pastors. These are elders. These are seminarian teachers. They're deacons. They're, there are those who are now in the church, and they are craftily, sneakily uh, spreading their unbiblical truths. Such persons are far more dangerous to the church than those outside the church. Why? It has been said that attacks from outside of the church generally unite the church. It's easy. If somebody comes after us, I mean, we'll just, we'll circle the wagons and we'll fight against it. But when the attack comes from with the inside, it doesn't unite us. It actually does what? Divides us. It divides it and it confuses God's people. And then we must note the adverb that is utilized here. How do the apostates sneakily creep in? They do so unnoticed a devastating word to me they come in unnoticed it's it's to suggest that a, a couple of things because one would be that people that the believers the congregation they're just not even paying attention it's like oh you call yourself a christian i'll just go just come on in whatever you believe we'll just take it the idea that they are unnoticed if god's people are not on their spiritual toes they will not even see that the infiltration has occurred. Because they come in so craftily and stealthily and without notice, they slowly begin to erode the doctrine and then the practice of the church. Concepts of fellowship diminish. Worship is undermined. True biblical worship becomes more focused on man rather than God. And let us not think that apostasy and, uh, only physically creeps into the church. Uh, we got to have somebody come into the church right now. I mean, we're, we're, so, we're so spiritual here. I mean, if an apostate walked in, we'd just jump on him, beat him up, and throw him out. Try to sneak in on us. No, it's not just the idea of someone physically coming in. We invite the apostasy in. We invite it in. 
by reading the writings of false teachers who write their books, publish their sermons, speak on Christian radio. We listen to their podcasts. They teach in colleges and seminaries. We can go to their conferences. And then they have websites that we can readily visit. No wonder Jude says, fight with everything you have for the faith, for the truth. The nature of an apostate is that they will find a way to sneak into the lives of the congregation. First uh, Peter 5, 8, uh, be of sober spirit, be on the alert for your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But you, Christian, resist him firm in your faith. I don't know how else to warn a church but to say this is not a maybe event. This is what's happening. And we need to be on the alert because it's not just the roaring lion. He's the he's the ringleader, as it were, but he has his agents. And you can go find those agents in any Christian bookstore. And you can listen to those agents sing their so-called Christian songs. And so we need to be more Berean-like and see if what they say is so. So we best be contending earnestly for the faith. This is their deception. But then we got a statement here about their destiny. An interesting statement. I love how Jude's kind of balancing this out because he says those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. I mean, we just learned the apostates are here. They're around us. They, they're, they're, they're in our seminaries. They are in our bookstores. They're in the songs that we might listen to. Is the church lost? What does Jude do? He indicates that the destiny of such persons is fixed and final. They're here. But they're going to get it. And, and they're going to get it from God, is what it says, essentially. From the beginning of redemptive history, God has promised that he will judge and condemn all who fall away from the faith. The idea behind this phrase, who were long beforehand marked out, is not a statement of individuals being predestined or predetermined to be apostates. Certainly God knows all of that. While God has planned out all things that will come to pass, the idea here is that God has determined beforehand, and here it's being stated, if you fall into apostasy, you will be condemned. It is a warning to the apostates, and it is a reminder to the church God's still in control. Do not think that however bad it could be, how much bad teaching could infiltrate the church, that the church would be lost. Jesus Christ was clear about that, was he not? The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. These will be those who are marked out for condemnation. Notice that Jude speaks of this, uh, of this as a specific condemnation. It says this condemnation. What condemnation is he speaking of? Well, drop down with me to verse 14 and 15, and we have a little bit of an insight. Here's what Jude himself says about this condemnation. Notice what he says. It was also about these men that Enoch, the seventh generation in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied saying, here we go, behold, the Lord 
uh, came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an, in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. God will judge the heretics. God will judge the apostates. It is coming. This is the destiny of the apostate, something which God had marked out beforehand. All the way back in the Old Testament, we find that God has been saying, I will condemn those who fall away from the faith. So such persons are always present in the church, but believers need not fear them or fear their success. Rather, what is it that you and I must be busy doing? You should already know. The answer is in verse 3. You must contend earnestly for the faith. Well, there's more. We see next, not only their deception and their destiny, but we see their depravity in the the middle of verse 4. He calls them simply ungodly persons. He describes them as ungodly persons. The, The word ungodly literally means not devout, not committed, not pious, not reverent. Rather, they are irreverent ones. They are impious, wicked, and godless. What makes this hard to hear is that there are certain persons who outwardly seem not to be ungodly, but their hearts and intentions are. And we don't want to believe this about certain persons. We have a tendency to, to demonstrate love and mercy and compassion. And we have some big names of Preachers that have made, of course, names for themselves and empires on the back of, of uh, believers or, or those who would follow them. And we recognize, oh, well, they're doing wrong, but do we really want to call it out? Well, if they undermine the faith, then we need to warn one another, do not go near that person. Do not embrace that teaching. We do not want to believe this about certain persons, yet they are present. And we must be ready to fight for the faith when it comes to light what they believe and how they behave. What is the fundamental demonstration of their depravity, though? These ungodly persons, I've said that they are depraved, and depraved has the idea of, of course, acting unbecoming in their lack of reverential awe of God and their commitment to believe and behave in a manner contrary to the word of God, their depravity is revealed in their promotion of their own agendas rather than the true worship of God. When you see somebody that's more intent on building his or her own kingdom than God's kingdom, there's a problem. When it becomes about look at me and what I've done rather than I'm looking to Christ and what he's done, there's a problem. By way of application, let us be wary, in fact, I would say fearful, when we find ourselves promoting ourselves and our agendas rather than God's. And it's an easy trap to fall into. Why would I warn you of that? Because there is a subtle truth that's pointed out in our text. It is possible for a believer to think and behave like an apostate. Did you know that? You may be a genuine believer, but if you're not careful, you can behave like an apostate. And then that throws your world upside down because then you can begin to doubt things about your salvation. And you ought to. 
And others would look at your life and go, I, I don't know if they're saved. When, when we are more focused upon ourselves, when we are more focused upon our circumstances, when we are more focused upon our troubles, when we're more focused on our concerns with what we want and what we expect, we may not be apostates, but let me tell you, that's exactly how an apostate operates. Like Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I think I was listening to a sermon by R.C. Sproul once who, who commented that, uh, you know, you don't have to uh, be a, a full-fledged, genuine atheist to do that. Plenty of Christians live as practical atheists. You profess to know God, but you live aspects of your life as though he doesn't exist. Well, that's the idea here. You may be a believer, but be careful about what you're portraying because you may portray the ad attribute of an apostate. No wonder the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 13 and uh, 12 and 13, saying, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that what? falls away, becomes apostate from the living God. Take care, church. Take care, brothers and sisters. I call you your responsibility here. And I shared it with you just a moment ago with our four baptismal candidates. Your goal is to make sure that those who say they believe continue to manifest that belief. That there is no found in any one of us an evil, unbelieving heart that would demonstrate what? That they actually are apostates. Notice that the context here is in the congregation of professing believers. He calls them brethren. And yet, beloved, the truth is not all in the congregation that, that this author is writing to were saved. Because there were those who were falling away. There were those who were apostatizing. So what's the remedy? What do you do? What can I challenge you as a congregation to do that would help us fight against some of this? Well, the author of Hebrews gives us the remedy in verse 13. But encourage. What word do you think that is? We've done so much on this. Parakaleo. Come alongside of one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you are not actively engaged and involved in the lives of other believers, you will, you, you might have your own problem or you become one who doesn't help those who need your help. Constant, consistent, regular fellowship with the saints who proclaim the truths concerning God and salvation will have a positive influence upon a congregation. And so I just ask you, are you such an encourager? Uh, do you go out of your way? To be, can I say it this way, a depravity destroyer. I need a bumper sticker, right? I am a depravity destroyer, right? So Jude has said now, I, I want you to be very uh, uh, conscious of the depravity that follows these people. And we're going to talk about how does that manifest itself in just a moment. So Jude has revealed the apostates' deception, their destiny, their depravity. Note next. He actually defines these ungodly persons. What are they doing? What are their deeds? He says, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. It is the nature of an apostate to pervert the doctrine of God's grace 
and making it a license to sin. And again, we can act like apostates, can't we? We begin to justify, well, it's okay if I sin this time because the grace of God covers me. That's apostasy. This is the person who thinks that if God's grace is greater than all his sin, do we not sing that song? Then the more that I sin, then the more God will be enabled to exhibit his grace. So I'm going to just sin it up. I'm going to manifest the grace of God by being as ungodly in my behavior as I possibly can. And you all laugh, and we don't say it that way. We, we are more selective than that. The other day, Laura and I went out to dinner or lunch or something, and she got this meal, and you get to make it yourself, and they had mushrooms. I despise mushrooms. It's fungus. She gets this meat meal, beef, which I love. That's real food. And... She mixes it with these mushrooms, and, and uh, it was the size that her meal was huge. And she couldn't eat it all. There's all this beef. So what do I do? You know, some of you who like mush- mushrooms, you just be, just get the whole thing. I'm being selective. I'm picking out exactly what I want. Well, see, that's the, what we do we don't, we're not the kind of sinners that we're just going to suck up all the sin. That would be unbecoming a Christian. So we're just selective. We just, we push the things we don't like out of the way to get that little sin that we do like. And we think it's okay because I'm just getting the one. We push it all out of the way. You know, Paul argues against this. And you're, some of you are familiar with Paul's argument in Romans chapter 6. Verses 1 and 2, when he said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? If, if God's glory and God's grace is so manifested when, when sinners are, have sinned and God displays that grace, then shall we just go on sinning so that grace may abound? And what does he say? May it never be. May it not be the case for any one of you. Let's not even give sin an opportunity here. He goes on to say, how shall we who died to sin live in it? For the believer, the deeds of the flesh must never be justified by God's grace. Yes, we may succumb to the flesh for a moment, but the believer, but the believer does not console himself saying something to the effect, it's okay, my sin magnifies the grace of God. Jude uses an interesting verb here. The verb is turn, who turn the grace of God. The, the word turn means to turn one thing into something else. It's not just like turning around, it's, it's taking a different form. It's taking a different shape. For example, the word turn is used positively in in Hebrews 7.12 to describe the change in the priesthood from the the inferior Levitical priesthood that could never really do anything to the greater priesthood of Melchizedek of which Christ would be uh, uh, a part of. So there's that turning from the old priesthood to 
the priesthood of Melchizedek. Obviously, it's used positively there in our text. Jude's using the the verb to show how apostates make a total and complete perversion of the doctrine of grace. They're not just, uh, you know, picking and choosing like I used in my illustration. They're turning it completely on its heels. They take the very doctrine that should teach them not how can I get away with sin, how can I justify my sin. They take the doctrine that says, Because God's been gracious to you, you should live what kind of life? Holy, sinless. You should be pursuing that holy, sinless life with gratitude. They instead use grace that says, well, I can indulge my own sinful, evil nature. Notice the severity of their deeds. They are described in our text as licentiousness. That's not a word we use a lot uh, in our common language. The word licentiousness speaks of excess. It speaks of having a lack of moderation. It is the absence of restraint. The human heart, beloved, being depraved, unable to please God, naturally migrates towards willful, unholy living. If you do not depend upon the grace of God, your life will seek unholy living. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, Peter takes the root of this word for licentiousness and he applies it, uh, applies it to the filthy, sensual lifestyle of the people of Sodom. That's how bad it is. He says, and if he, God, rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct, literally the licentious behavior or lifestyle of unprincipled men, what was their sin? The sin of sodomy, the sin of homosexuality, the sin of just gross immorality. And now Jude's using this word. He says they've turned the grace of God into an excuse to be sensual and to excuse their fleshly desires. And Peter would talk about, you know, resisting the. The, the, the fleshly desires that wage what? War against your soul. Do you know that every act of disobedience, every time you willfully sin, this is licentious behavior. This is not acting out in with moderation, or I mean, not just moderation, not, it's not, um, um, it's not living as you are called to do. Licentious, sensual, unchecked, unrestrained, ungodly living is not an indication that you're a saint. You want to have doubt about your salvation? Go ahead, partake of some licentious behavior, and you can have no assurance of your salvation. It is indicative of not a saint, but what? An apostate. By way of application, let us be very careful to take any of the blessings of God, blessings that are intended to put God's glory on display and then use them to bring glory to ourselves, to use them in a manner which does not bring glory to God. Uh, let me, uh, and, uh, so I've given you this, this, this nasty, gross immorality, but let me tell you how you can do this subtly. God has given us our jobs, Correct. Do you know if you are here and you have a job, it may not be your dream job, but if you have a job, it's been given to you by the good providence of God, correct? 
But when you use your job, do you actively use it to bring God glory? Or are you using your job to fulfill your own agendas and to satisfy your own wants? I'm going to work so that I can have this money, so that I can do this thing and take this vacation and and have this status and, and work for that promotion. But do you fail to say, God, you've given me this job, and I'm going to use this job to bring you glory? And sometimes those two can, you know, little have a little war against them. God has given you various gifts and talents, but do you use them intentionally to serve God and his people? Or do you use those gifts to advance your own cause? Let us not use the blessings of God as a means of self-satisfaction. Do you know your life is not to be lived for your own self-satisfaction? Whose satisfaction are you to live for? Christ. Well, finally, it brings us to their denial. Their denial says at the end of verse 4, and deny, these. this is a characteristic, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that this final attribute of the apostate is found in his denial, specifically his denying of who? Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we said? Ultimately, all heresy and apostasy will undermine the work and person of Jesus Christ. The verb deny here speaks of refusing or disavowing or rejecting someone or something. It is turning your back and saying no more. The idea is putting off something entirely. It is saying I refuse to submit to this person. Such an attitude is positively illustrated for us in the account of Daniel's three companions, who upon being ordered by the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar himself to bow down and worship a golden image that he had crafted for his own glory, they defied the king. They rejected the king. They denied the king. They said, we will not bow down. We see that in Daniel 3. Let me read the account for you, 16 16 through 18, says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve. We will not bow down to your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's, that's a positive denial. In our text, the apostates are those, though, who would say, in effect, God, we don't care what you think. We will not bow down to you. We will not serve or worship you even though your word has stated that we should, even though we know the condemnation that is ours, because if we don't, and Jude makes this description of the mind of the apostate, he also offers us some incredible insight into the person of Christ. We read that little statement that you've denied our our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Note three things with me that these persons deny. First, they deny the exclusivity of, of Christ. Note that Jesus is referred to as our only master and lord. How many masters and lords do you have? I, 
I say that, and I know the answer, Sunday school answer is what? Jesus. But who do you serve? Who is it that you're really serving? Are you serving yourself? Serving another person? We are reminded immediately that apart from Christ, there is no way, there is no truth, there is no life. Jesus himself said it. Share this verse with an unbeliever and they'll get, well, that's pretty exclusive. Well, I didn't say it. Jesus did. You take it up with him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one will come to the Father except through me. Not through me plus baptism. Not me plus the traditions of a church. Not me plus their own desires. Through Christ and Christ alone. Jesus is not a way, he's not a truth, and he's not a life among many possibilities. He is the one and only way. In John 15, 5, Jesus makes another exclusive statement. Try this one on for size. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, if you are connected to me, if you remain in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Here's the exclusivity You will do nothing, accomplish nothing, be nothing apart from me, Jesus says. Apart from me, you can do absolutely, positively, irrevocably, unalterably nothing. We should be running to Jesus. If you desire Jesus, you should be saying, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me and enable me to bear fruit because I can't do it. A lot of us want to think we can. Jesus is the vine, not a vine. Jesus is the source, not a source. Jesus is all the sustenance, not just some place we might hook up to. There is no other source by which to find life, joy, purpose, other than being rightly related to dwelling with Christ. How about this exclusive statement of Jesus? John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's an exclusive statement. If you're not loving the brethren, then you're not showing yourself to be a disciple of Christ. The only way the world will see Christ is by the manifestation of Christian love among the saints. As they fellowship, as they worship, they'll see it in our homes, in our marriage, in our parenting, in our relationships. Let me ask you, do you, particularly, uh, do, uh, do others, particularly unbelievers, get a picture of Christ by the way you conduct yourself with others? You talk about intentionality. My job is to demonstrate Christ. My neighbors better know it. My coworkers better know it. My children better know it. Living for Christ, loving for Christ is the only way that we demonstrate that. But in addition to the exclusivity of Christ, we see the sovereignty of Christ. Note the word master. He is our only master. The word master means literally sovereign ruler. The idea is that apostates will eventually deny the very sovereignty that is the very deity of Christ. To be absolutely sovereign, to be the one true master, means that you are what? 
you're God. If you can control everything, you're a God. How many of you wish you could control everything? I mean, really, we say sometimes, I wish I could control everything. No, you don't. The language here is important. Jesus is not a master with a little m. Rather, he is our only master. In comparison to others, then, there are no other masters. The idea is that I may be a slave and I may have an earthly master, but that's not my master. To pledge allegiance to Jesus as the only master means that he is none other than the one true God, for God alone is sovereign. Consider what the Lord God himself said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43, 11. Just listen to what the Lord says. The Lord says, I, even I, am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. Now, I start reading that, and I go, okay, what do we have? Uh, what do we have here but a statement that says Yahweh is the Savior? right? The Lord is the Savior. And you say, well, yeah, we all know this. What do we do with the proclamation of the angel who said in, to the shepherds in Luke 2.11, uh, for today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The idea of Lord and sovereignty is connected to the Savior. Jesus is referred to as both Savior and and Lord, that which is said to be true only of who? Yahweh, the one true God. So Jesus is truly sovereign, truly master, truly God. Apostates will deny that at some level. And then finally, we see the lordship of Christ. Jesus is referred to as Lord, a word that means the, to be the owner. It is a term of respect and honor to call someone Lord. The idea is that the apostates do not give Jesus the honor that he alone requires and demands as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. When human works are added to salvation, that is apostasy. It is a denial of who Jesus is and what he has done. Either Jesus paid it all, or you could say he paid most of it, or part of it. But if he only paid most of it or part of it, then you're damned to eternal hell. Jesus paid it all. Note with me how Titus 1, 15 and 16 describes this contrast between true believers and apostates. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they what? They deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Let me just back up here for a moment, because sometimes when we think of heresy or heretics and apostates, and we're talking about behavior, I understand Christians are going to sin, and then we repent. We confess and we repent of those sins. But if you're hiding today sin within your heart, and you're not concerned about it, and you're not really doing anything about it, and you think you're just going to coast somehow into the kingdom, guess what? You're demonstrating the same kind of denial that an apostate does. The apostate rejects Jesus' exclusivity, his sovereignty, and his lordship. 
While we do have belief systems that refuse to accept Christ as Lord, who teach that there is another way to find eternal life and purpose, and while these are dangerous in that they will lead people to a Christless eternity, for Jude and for us, there is a, clear, a more clear and present danger for the Christian faith. What is it? There are those in the church who claim to identify with the Christian faith yet fail to embrace the, the full deity of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ, the lordship of Christ. Though there are those who fail to believe that Jesus lived a, sinful li- a sinless life, who wonder if Jesus actually did rise bodily from the dead or whether or not he's coming again. There are those in the church who even say that Jesus is not the only way to salvation. I remind you that a poll was given by LifeWay Survey that four out of ten professing evangelical Christians believe that Jesus is not the only way to salvation. That is heresy in the church. This means that one of our greatest threats is found by apostates that are in the church, not outside the church. Beloved, we must be diligent and earnestly contend for the faith as revealed in God's word. We must unashamedly confess that Christ is the eternal son of God who came to earth, who lived a perfect and sinful life, who was crucified on the cross as our only sure sacrifice for sin, who died, who was buried, and rose again on the third day. We must believe that our master and Lord Jesus Christ is presently seated at the right hand of God and that he will come again with great power and glory. To believe any other, other way is to believe the apostates. And they've been marked out beforehand for what? Condemnation. Therefore, let us earnestly contend for the faith. Let us renew our resolve to know, love, and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the truths that are revealed in our text, in your holy word. Lord, taking the time to describe to us the attributes, the characteristics of those who have fallen away. We pray, Father, that none of these things would be true of us in this congregation. But, Father, we pray that we would be a people who long for the word of God, who, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it we may grow in respect to salvation. That we would come to recognize and realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us just one thing, that Jesus Christ saves and he saves alone that jesus christ is lord that jesus christ is master i pray father god that these things would be true for us we ask your blessing upon the rest of our day as we give you the praise and glory in jesus name